Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today on the program, Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Doris Kearns Goodwin. We're going to revisit our conversation from September, which is uh, Ms. Goodwin's second appearance on Access Utah. We were speaking ahead of the premiere of Ken Burns' documentary, The Roosevelt's, an intimate history, which was premiering on PBS stations. It's now available at pbs.org. The Roosevelt's weaves the stories of Theodore, Franklin, and Eleanor, three members of one of the most prominent and influential families in American politics. And so coming up, our conversation with Doris Kearns Goodwin. Hope you'll stay tuned. First, we're going to uh, go to uh, our email and uh, get out there some comments that we received and uh, questions. Uh, these have come in various at various times, uh, some of these during uh, recorded interviews, and we haven't uh, got these on, so I want to uh, make sure we get these on the air. We do value your comments and uh, get them on as soon as possible, but I've been a bit remiss on these. So this is from Kylie, along with uh, accompanying some photos from Four Arch Canyon. Uh, she wrote this message. This is within a half mile west of Gemini Bridges and literally right next to the Entrada Boy Scout camp. This is in the Moab area. And she says, I mean right next to. And she's talking about uh, drilling rigs. It's uh, one of the most disturbing well sites I have seen in the region. A large hole dug into the ground that used to be a hillside. The destruction is shocking. The machinery noise carries uh, and can be heard from very far away. I was totally shocked by this. It is surrounded by a huge berm, which has trash all around it from construction crew. Unbearably sad. So we'll uh, try to look into getting those photos up on our website, perhaps. And uh, we're looking into covering this at uh, UPR. So thanks for sending that in. That's uh, Kylie in uh, Moab. We uh, revisited a program uh, recently uh, with uh, Jeff Gwynn, author of Manson, The Life and Times of Charles Manson. Jeff Gwynn said with his book he wanted to answer two questions. Why does Manson's name still resonate with us all these years after these famous murders? And what happened in his life to make him the way he turned out? It's a fascinating discussion. And he says, really like a trip across American history, because Manson represents so many aspects of American society. Responding to that program, uh, Joe wrote the following. What are the characteristics or qualities of a cult and cult leader? Fundamentally, is there a difference between a cult and a religion? If we look closely at some religious founders, would we not see some very unbelievable events and claims coupled with violence and deception? So that's uh, Joe's question and uh, comment. Thanks for that, uh, Joe. Uh, also recently, we had uh, revisited a program, interesting program, on a book called Dataclism, Who We Are When We Think No One's Looking. OK Cupid co-founder Christian Rudder uh, put uh, big data to... Uh, a different use than we usually do, helping us understand human nature. We also had on with us USU philosophy professor Charlie Hineman, who applied the ideas of philosopher Immanuel Kant to our digital world. He proposed a personal ethics of clicking. Here's what Amy responded to that program. Uh, she says, Diffusing conflicts in person is difficult enough. How can we resolve them within the digital world when rushing to judgment is amplified by the immediacy of posting or tweeting? Thanks for that. Uh, Amy. And uh, finally, uh, very recently, last week, in fact, we had on with us uh, uh, on tape uh, Amity Schles, author of uh, New York Times bestsellers, The Forgotten Man, A New History of the Great Depression, and Coolidge, a biography of the 30th president. That's what we spent most of our time talking about is uh, President Coolidge. We also talked about uh, the Depression and uh, from a conservative point of view. And uh, Steve writes this. He said, I know the show is not live this morning. 
He says, but wow, Mishlaz is laying it on thick, laying on thick the ide- ideological polemic right from the start. Uh, thanks for all of those uh, comments. Speaking of Mishlaz, we uh, talked last week uh, about some stories Mishlaz wishes had been included in Ken Burns' documentary, The Roosevelts. And so we thought it a good segue to revisit our conversation uh, from September with Doris Kearns Goodwin. She's the author of several books, including The Bully Pulpit, Theodore Roosevelt, William Howard Taft, and The Golden Age of Journalism. Also, Noah, Ordinary Time, Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt, The Home Front in World War II, and Team of Rivals, The Political Genius of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, she's one of the experts featured in Ken Burns' documentary, The Roosevelts, and Intimate History. That's now available on PBS.org. The Roosevelt's weaves the stories of Theodore, Franklin, and Eleanor, three members of one of the most prominent and influential families in American politics. We review this uh, fascinating history, draw parallels to today. So we were looking ahead to the premiere of that documentary when we uh, reached Doris Kearns Goodwin in September. Doris Kearns Goodwin, thank you so much for joining us again on Access Utah. Oh, I'm glad to be back with you. Thank you. Uh, especially, I'm, I'm sure you're in the middle of a blitz uh, ahead of uh, ahead of the premiere of this PBS special. Oh, it was so much fun to be involved with Ken again. I'd been involved with him before in baseball, and, and now to have it be these three people that I spent so many years of my life with, Teddy and Eleanor and Franklin Roosevelt, it was a great treat. Uh, and by the way, uh, a little later in the program, I do have a listener who told me I want to want to have uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin talk baseball. So uh, we'll get back it's to that. The deal, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, I wonder, first of all, if, if you could talk about uh, how you choose your projects. This, of course, you were involved in Ken Burns' project, but uh, you have written on um, on Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt. The latest book is on Theodore uh, Roosevelt and his. Uh, his protege, uh, William Howard Taft, you've written on LBJ. How do you choose your projects? Well, the most important thing for me when I decide where I'm going to start working is I want to live with that person for a long period of time because I know it's going to take me years. It took me seven years to do Teddy Roosevelt and Taft, six years Franklin and Eleanor, ten years Lincoln. I couldn't write about Hitler or Stalin. I want to wake up with this person in the morning. I want to think about them when I go to bed at night. So it has to be somebody I know I basically will respect and feel affection for. And I also want to live in a period of time that seems to me like a dramatic era. So clearly the Civil War was that, the Depression and the New Deal, and the Progressive Era at the turn of the 20th century. And then once I get the person, like in this case, once I got Teddy Roosevelt as the person I wanted to do, because so much good had been written about him, per se, I have to figure out my own angle, as I did with Team of Rivals, what can I produce that might give a little freshness to the story, and that's how William Howard Taft and the journalists came floating in. Doris Kearns Goodwin here. We have her for the hour. By the way, we have a couple of questions that came in uh, in January, and of course we were on tape at that point, so I'll, I'll present those two as well as we go along. Uh, and uh, I want to talk a little bit about the relevance of, of history. And it, as evidence, um, you, you're in... Uh, in demand on on you know the talk show circuit, uh, talking about issues of today, Ken Burns is uh, quoted as saying uh, that uh, biography and history is important to understand the people, these particular people, as a vessel through which to understand a particular age. Do you, do you have that same view? Oh, without a question. In fact, I think that by studying, I have to believe this because I have such passion for history. But I think if we study the struggles and the triumphs of the people who lived before us, there's definitely lessons we can learn. I mean, underlying all the books that I suppose that I've written 
his leadership. You know, what was it that allowed Theodore Roosevelt to communicate so well to his countrymen? Short, punchy language that somehow made him seem like he was talking directly to people, not his Harvard buddies. What was it that made Franklin Roosevelt so able to communicate? That voice on the radio that made people feel that he was in their living rooms when he was speaking to them. You know, what was it about their ability to get around the country and really stay close to the people through the whistle-stop train tours? All of these things I think leaders of today can learn from the attributes of the people who were some of our best presidents, because leadership can be developed. I, I really believe that. It's not just something you're born with. So by looking at these people and even seeing through their errors what they screwed up, why did they screw up, we can learn that as individuals as well as as countrymen. Seems like when I turn to history, one of the impulses that I have is to get behind the, behind the icon, sort of the you know the, the face on Mount Rushmore. Uh, I want to learn about these people because they've had an effect. For example, uh, FDR. I felt like I grew up with FDR. My father was a young man during the Depression, revered FDR, felt like he had helped him personally. On the other hand, some of my father's friends were died in the wool conservatives. FDR was everything that's wrong about the country, you know, activist <laughs> government. Uh, so you had this icon. I don't know if you get that reaction. People want to get behind that icon. Oh, without, I mean, that's really what you hope. By reading enough diaries, by reading letters, by going back to the people who, just as you say, there were people who tuned into his radio shows and they would do nothing else but come home. A construction worker said, I've got to get there because he's talking to me, so I have to be home in time. Whereas the people who hated him would throw the radios out of the window because they didn't even want to hear the voice. So you have to try and understand what produced such passions at that time on the part of the people toward this leader. And not only that, but all of these leaders have their own strengths and their flaws, like all of us human beings do. So, you know, the, the relationship between Franklin and Eleanor and his betraying her with an affair with Lucy Mercer, it saddened me when I was writing about it. My kids would te- tease me that they'd come in and listen to me, and I'd be saying, oh, Franklin, why did you have to do this? Or Eleanor, <laughs> forgive him. It's many years later. <laughs> or similarly with Teddy and Taft. You know, it just so made me sad that that long friendship ruptures in 1912, and I had wished that Teddy had waited until 1916 to run for president, but he couldn't wait. He wanted to be it again so much. So they all have things that disappoint you, but basically the ones I choose, I'm going to feel good about them most of the time, which is why it's such a pleasure to write about them. I wonder about parallels. We'll get into talking about specific personalities, and these people are larger than life and uh, and had a great impact on us. As I was remembering, thinking back about FDR and Eleanor, specifically with regard to Lucy Mercer and the, the affair, and um, I, I kept thinking about the Clintons. Me too. I mean, I think what happened with Lucy Mercer when Eleanor discovered a packet of love letters from Lucy to her husband, she said the bottom dropped out of her world, but then on the other hand, she then forged an independent path that she might not have forged before. She went out of the house to find her fulfillment, became involved with women activists who were fighting for child labor regulations for minimum wage and maximum hours. She learned she had a whole range of talent she never knew she had before. And I think for Hillary Clinton, too, even though she'd been an active force right up to the time of Monica Lewinsky, somehow that, that, that situation, I think, forced her even into a more independent path. She ran for the Senate. She ran for the presidency on her own and now, indeed, might do it again. So sometimes these, these moments of sorrow can produce strength in a person. And, in fact, in almost all the presidents I've studied, they've been tested by adversity 
and come through it with perseverance and resilience. It's one of the traits that I think is, is so important for a leader. And I think Eleanor and Hillary had that similar pattern that they had to go through. Yeah, I, I don't want to get into talking about that. I think that is a, and I was reading an interview that you gave where you, where you pointed that out. And then I was thinking you could expand that you know, to many other leaders, you know, Lincoln, Churchill. Um, it seems to be a, a common pattern. Uh, but I wanted to uh, t- talk about the, um, one of the differences between you know, the personal lives of the Roosevelts versus the personal lives of the Clintons. That's the difference in press, and, and some things were kept private where they're not today. Um, and so FDR's affair, I don't think, was, would have been commonly known through, you know, throughout the country. No, there's no question about that. I mean, there seemed to be in the old days an understanding on the part of the press that the private lives of our public figures were relevant only as they affected their direct responsibilities. So that even though they knew about some of Roosevelt's relationships, they knew that he was paralyzed from the waist down and that he couldn't really walk on his own power. There was an honor code among the press not to show him with his wheelchair or his braces. Or similarly, going back to Teddy Roosevelt's time, it would be unimaginable today, I think, that reporters could have such a close relationship with the president. He had them for lunch and dinner. He had them over during his barber's hour when he was being shaved. They went to his house at Sagamore Hill. But they felt free to criticize him, and he felt free to criticize them. So their integrity was preserved, as was his. I mean, my favorite story has to do with when one of these journalists wrote a review of his memoir about the Rough Riders, and he said that Teddy so placed himself in the center of every action in it that he should have called the book Alone in Cuba, (laughs) as if he'd been the only one there. (laughs) Instead of getting angry, he writes back and he said, I regret to tell you that my wife and my children have adored your review of my book, and now you must owe me something. I want you to visit me the next time you come. I've long wanted to make your acquaintance. And they became friends, even as this humorist could continue to criticize him. The relationship between reporters and the press today and the president's is so much more at loggerheads. And I think it's in part because these private lives have now become public fodder. So the presidents are much more cherry about being close to reporters. Hmm. And, and I think FDR probably doesn't get elected if it's widely known how, how handicapped he was. It's very interesting. That's the decision he made. I mean, you'd like to believe that certainly in today's world, it would not be a handicap, but rather be a badge of honor that he had come back from this terrible, uh, difficult time of trying to walk on his own power again for years and not being able to do it. But at the time, he felt that the country wouldn't accept a person who was not fully able to walk and maneuver. And so that honor code was kept really for most of that time. And yes, that's true. I mean, we'll never know what they would have done had they known, but it it was his judgment, and he's the politician, so he probably knew his people Mm. that they would not have elected him had they known. Let's get into some of these personalities. These are larger-than-life folks. Um, Let's hear from uh, Ken Burns' documentary. This is clip number two. This is talking about Theodore Roosevelt. You think of Jefferson as America's Renaissance man, but it's really Roosevelt. He would not stop talking. He was a one-man gas bag. But it was so interesting that most people didn't mind. One of my favorite stories is he heard that there was a famous big game hunter in Washington. And he said to some of the people on the staff, get that man over here. I'd really like to meet him. 
So this big strapping English fellow was taken into the president's office and the door was closed and people outside the office heard this talking going on. Finally, the man emerged about an hour and a half later looking just beat down to, as though he'd been through a storm. And one of the president's staff said, what did you tell the president? He said, I told him my name. <laughs> we love him because of the energy. His laugh was infectious. His son, Ted, said, my father had a dozen eggs for breakfast every morning. So he's a large man, and he's larger than life. Roosevelt once said, there's nothing quite so exhilarating as being thrown over the shoulders of a 300-pound Japanese man. So I love that line. What what did you tell the president? I told him my name. The, the rest of it was Theodore, you know, talking at him, I guess, or to him. And, and entertaining him. I mean, I think that's the point. I mean, the extraordinary thing about Theodore Roosevelt was that he had so many interests. I mean, he read books every day. He might read two or three books. He wrote 40 books. He was a bird birder. He hunted wild game. He loved to ride horseback. He loved to box, to wrestle, play tennis. Um, he had this game every afternoon where he'd take people on a walk in Rock Creek Park. And the deal was you couldn't go around any obstacle. You had to go through it, point to point. So if you came to a rock, you had to climb it. If you came to a precipice, you had to go down it. And then finally, there's one great story where he takes a French ambassador on one of these rambles in the afternoon. And the guy's so excited, he has a, his top hat on and his silk coat, finds himself in the woods climbing rocks, going down precipices. They finally come to a broad river. He says, thank God it's over, until he hears Teddy say, we better take off our clothes so as not to get them wet. And so he says, oh, God, for the honor of France, I'll, I will strip. They get to the other side, and he has lavender kid gloves on. And Teddy says, what's that? He says, well, you never can tell. You might meet ladies on the other side. So this multifaceted, interesting character, somebody said about him, a British Viscount came to America and said he'd seen only two forces of nature in America, Niagara Falls and Teddy Roosevelt. <laughs> and I guess that's, that explains in part why he couldn't wait till 1916. He, he think, just wanted to be president again. Right. He loved being at the center of attention. And he gloried in it, and he found joy in it. And outside of it, he felt like half a person. So he then decides to run against his friend Taft in 1912. Now, so he really enjoyed being president, uh, he, and you see that you see these famous photographs of recent presidents, uh, before and after, either four or eight years, and you know they got gray hair. It seems like they've aged a lifetime. Um, sort of a you know, I, there must be some good parts still, but I, I wonder if things have changed fundamentally about being president. I, I think they may have, because I think that clearly there were difficulties that all these presidents faced. I mean, you think about FDR having to go through the Depression and World War II, and Teddy Roosevelt, that whole impact of the Industrial Revolution. And yet Teddy would say, I can't wait to get to my desk every morning. And Franklin Roosevelt was once asked, why would anyone want to be president when there are all these difficult decisions you have to make? And he said, what do you mean? Anybody would want to be president. It's the greatest job in the world. It's a temperamental thing, I think, to love being at the center, to love making decisions, to enjoy people, and the whole versatility of your experience. They all got out on the road, like Teddy loved being in those whistle-stop train tours, going around the country weeks at an end on the fall and the spring, stopping at village stations, waving to everybody. I mean, there's one moment when he's waving to a group of people, and he's so upset they haven't waved back until he hears that they were a herd of cows <laughs> that he thought were, were, right. were people. And, but still, that you worry, I think you're right, when you look at the recent president's faces, or even watching their presidencies, 
I'm sure there are great moments when pieces of legislation pass that give them joy, but the experience itself doesn't seem to be as full of, maybe it's the temperament of the people we've had in there, or maybe it's the experience of the presidency, and maybe it's the relationship of the press, and maybe it's the country. There's a whole bunch of things that doesn't make it seem quite as, as, as full of energy as it did for these people in the past. I wonder if it if it takes it still take, took then and still takes now an outsized ego to even think about well I can save the country. I'm thinking of uh, there's an interchange between the Romneys, uh, Mitt and and his wife, and uh, Mrs. Romney at the breakfast table asked Mitt, "Can you save this country?" And he says, "Yes, I can." And off off they go. And part of that's of course cr- trying to create the mythology for the campaign. But it it, it kind of struck me as anybody even thinking about running for the president then or now has to have maybe a bigger ego than than you and me. I think that's right. I mean, I think the key thing is you need that self-confidence, you need that self-esteem, and yet there's a fine line between it and the lack of humility and then what can lead to hubris. I mean, that's why Lincoln was so special. I mean, he had such deep self-confidence that you might not have known because he seemed so humble. But underneath, he really thought he was the best man to be president during that difficult time of the Civil War. And yet when people were around him, it's not like he was pushing himself on people. He understood how to deal with them. But that's a really important thing. I don't think you can run for president today, given what you have to go through and all the hurdles, even more than in the past when you could be named at a convention and then run for two months without having an outsized ego. So the question is, can you stay grounded with that ego? And that's why some of these presidents, you have to find out ways that they can just remember who they were before they became president. Roosevelt... Teddy would go home to Sagamore Hill and his wife could ground him. FDR would go to Hyde Park and remember what it was like when he was young before he was president. They need to have those people around them that can still connect to them prior to this, or else sometimes that ego goes beyond control. I want to talk a little bit about this uh, this idea that you, you've you brought up, this uh, this common theme, at least between the three, three Roosevelt's that are uh, included in Ken Burns' new documentary, which, by the way, uh, premieres on Sunday and goes for uh, seven nights. It's a 14-hour documentary. Doris Kearns Goodwin is my guest, and she is featured in this documentary. She's author of uh, several books, a Team of Rivals, um, about Lincoln. Uh, the, her latest book is The Bully Pulpit, Theodore Roosevelt, William Howard Taft, and the Golden Age of Journalism. Many other books. She's written on LBJ and the Kennedys and uh, other books. By the way, you can join this conversation at uh, upraxis at gmail.com. I want to talk, uh, Doris Kurtz Goodwin, about this, uh, this idea that you brought up of uh, a theme of personal sadness, a tragedy marking each of these people's lives, and, and how maybe that enhanced a drive maybe they, they had already or, or produced that, that drive. So with Theodore Roosevelt, he, he had this uh, tragic death of his, his wife, who apparently he adored uh, early on. I think you're right. I think there's got to be something in these people, maybe from early on, some ambition or some desire or some interest in, in, in being a leader, whether it's of a small circle or a larger circle. But then often the ones I've studied, adversity has touched them. They came out stronger. And then it gives them something to look back on when things get tough later. I mean, for example, when Teddy Roosevelt's wife died, and he said the light had gone out of his life. He thought he would never marry again. He was so depressed, he went to the Badlands, where he became a rancher and a cowboy for a period of time and just rode his horse 20 hours a day, and he said constant activity prevented overthought. And he finally came through that depression 
came back and actually married his old girlfriend, Edith Roosevelt, and had a very joyous marriage. But most importantly, he said, when I've seen as a young person sorrow so deep and joy so keen, I'm not going to let myself get so upset about losing an election. So I think it does give you perspective, just as Franklin Roosevelt's polio. After that, people said that he now understood what it was like for other people for whom fate had dealt an unkind hand. And one of the things Eleanor said later, anyone who's been through great suffering can connect to people in a different way. And if he's taken years to try and move his toe, somehow he'll have the strength to get through the crisis of the Depression or later the war. So FDR, that's interesting. Uh, he said that he felt like this had produced maybe an empathy that he wouldn't have had. Do you think that would have changed his policies? He'd been a different president? I don't know if it would have changed his policies, but there, because he always liked people. So the greater connection that he would have had with all sorts of people probably would have gotten into him. But the people around him, like Francis Perkins, his secretary of labor, said that he really did become a deeper person as a result of this. And he did he was able to look at people. Like when he went to Warm Springs, which he opened up for a lot of other polio victims, he was meeting people of all different classes there and really connecting to them, not just seeing them on a campaign trail, but with them day after day after day. And I think somehow it did, he had come from a very elite background, and it did allow him to see things from other people's eyes. And then when we have a paralyzed group of people during the Depression, he can identify with them in a way that perhaps from that charmed life, he might have had more more difficulty. Maybe he would have done it anyway, but it might have not, might have not been as as intuitive as it was. Let's hear another clip from the film. This is clip number one, and uh, and this will introduce you to FDR's early ambitions. In fact, they're they're very much connected to the person he idolized, uh, Theodore. One drowsy summer afternoon in 1908. In the fifth floor offices of the law firm of Carter, Ledyard, and Milburn at 54 Wall Street in Manhattan, the junior clerks were idly talking about their dreams for the future. Most hoped just to become partners one day. But one had far bigger dreams. He didn't plan to practice law for long, he said. He intended to go into politics and eventually become president of the United States. The speaker was just 25 years old. He had been an undistinguished student, and he was an indifferent lawyer. But no one laughed. His name, after all, was Franklin Roosevelt. His fifth cousin, Theodore Roosevelt, was already president, the youngest and perhaps the most popular president in American history. And his rise to that office had once appeared just as unlikely as their fellow clerks' chances now seemed. So part of this you can you can understand. They're both Roosevelt's. Uh, Theodore is very effective and, and popular president. But on the other hand, uh, Theodore's a Republican. Franklin's a, a, a Democrat. But it, it did seem that very early on FDR wanted to follow Theodore Roosevelt's path, and he wanted to follow it exactly, and he ended up doing that. Assistant Secretary no, of the Navy, no Governor, you know... Uh, President? He obviously had known um, Franklin, you know, through Franklin and Eleanor, especially had made the link with Teddy Roosevelt, because once he started going out with Eleanor, um, she being the niece of Teddy Roosevelt, he was brought into that Teddy Roosevelt family circle. And indeed, Theodore Roosevelt officiated and gave away Eleanor at 
the wedding of Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt. So that's in 1904, and he's looking at this man who's president, who's so powerful and so popular, and he idolizes him. So he does go to the state senate, just as Teddy Roosevelt did. He goes to the assistant secretaryship of the Navy, as Teddy Roosevelt did, and then eventually becomes governor. And even though he is a Democrat and Teddy was a Republican, Teddy, Teddy was such a progressive Republican that the line between the two at that time was nowhere near as wide as it might be today. But it shows that you do develop an ideal of somebody else. And even at a young age of 25, he's saying he wants to be president someday. I mean, that's remarkable. Uh, what uh, maybe if you could um, I don't know, join those two and talk about the the legacy, what they mean. Back to the icon idea, uh, and I think we would say you know active government, government um, helping or you know opponents to that intruding in people's lives, but a, a bigger, more active government. I think that is what that connects the two of them, I and mean, because Theodore Roosevelt comes along at a time when the Industrial Revolution has totally changed the economy, people moving from farms to cities millionaires sprouting up next to tenements, um, rising gap between the rich and the poor, no regulation at all. Laissez-faire was so religious uh, con- conviction at that time, so that there was no regulation of factories and wor- no workman's compensation, no hourly regulation, women and children working in factories, bad drugs flooding a market without regulation. And he argued that it was important for government to step in and begin to soften some of the worst aspects of the industrial order. And he saw there were violent strikes going on at the time. He saw the specter of socialism. So he thought that rational, moderate, Republican action would be the best way of keeping the country on a steady course. And the square deal, of course, was his motto. And it was fair. I'll be fair to the corporations so long as they don't use unethical means, and I'll be fair to poor people as long as they try hard. He was right in the middle. And then, interestingly, his Bull Moose platform in 1912 was more radical than his presidency. It outlined many of the things that the New Deal finally put into place, health insurance and much more regulation in the economy and the financial part of the economy, so that, in a way, the New Deal finished a lot of what Teddy Roosevelt was unable to accomplish. We're going to go to a break, but before we do that, uh, I'll get this email in from Steve for Doris Kearns Goodwin, Pulitzer Prize-winning historian who is with us for the hour. She's one of the experts featured in Ken Burns' new documentary, The Roosevelt's An Intimate History, uh, features uh, Theodore Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt, these uh, three iconic figures who have had such a great effect on us. Um, and that begins on PBS Sunday evening and runs for uh, seven consecutive uh, evenings. Here's what Steve says. You were noting that presidents of the modern era seem to take less joy in the job and that it seems to more of a burden to them than it was to the Roosevelts. Might part of the reason for this be that in the era you're discussing, the presidency itself was more open and that there was much more give and take between the president and the population at large. Today the presidency has become so imperial that the president is so cocooned that perhaps much of the joy of everyday action with people has been drained from it. What do you think, says Steve? I think that's a fabulous observation, and I'm not sure I had thought about it before. I think you're absolutely dead right. I mean, whenever Teddy Roosevelt would be feeling frustrated by the job, his answer was to get out on that train trip and go around the country And then he would meet with people who would come to the train station. They'd bring him all sorts of gifts. I mean, crazy, horned toads, lizards, snakes, you know, and he'd say, delighted. But nonetheless, you get energy from the people. And similarly, FDR, I think even having twice a week press conferences 
where he was having to spar with reporters twice a week, and they brought him what people were feeling in the country at large. That's what keeps your energy going is that sense of connection. And I think what's happened too much to the presidency today, I agree. I think it's become more insulated. They stay in the White House more than they did in the past, except when they're campaigning. And travel should allow them to be out even more. But in those days, you know, summer was a long vacation in Teddy Roosevelt's time, even Franklin, so they could go around the country during that time. Congress would be out of session for a longer period of time. But there was something about that intimacy of connection with the people that sustains you that I think is absent today. That's a very good observation. And uh, to add to that, I've always thought the president, and I don't know how you you know get the president to agree to this, I always thought our president should have question time in, in, you know, with Congress the way the British prime minister does every Thursday in the, you know, House of Commons, get up and, and be peppered by, you know, by questions. Absolutely, because that's what keeps them, you know, aware of where the questions are coming from. So long as the questioners, you know, really are not just standing up to become public figures themselves, which is what happens sometimes in these press conferences. But I think it's a way of keeping you sharp. I mean, Franklin Roosevelt used to have to prepare for those press conferences but he said it was the best thing to do because he knew then where the country was feeling on certain issues that would be expressed through the press. Another factor, and I was just thinking about this preparing for this interview, um, we've had the 50th anniversary of the uh, Civil Rights Act. Of course, President Johnson very much uh, involved in, in, in that, 1964. Um, and as I think about that, you know, landmark pieces of legislation, then you compare that to today where we, we can't move anything through Congress, and I think that maybe contributes to, you know, the joylessness of, perhaps we could phrase it that way, of the modern presidency. I think that's right as well. I mean, in LBJ's time, you know, not only was he temperamentally so suited to get the Congress to act on civil rights and Medicare and AIDS education, but it was such a different political culture then because Democrats and Republicans would stay in, in Washington on the weekends. They weren't racing home to gather funds for these escalating campaign costs. And so they formed friendships across party lines. They played poker together. They drank together. And their wives knew each other. And so when Roosevelt, I'm not Roosevelt, I get my guys mixed up sometimes, when LBJ was, was looking for Dirksen, the Republican minority leader, to go with him on the filibuster breaking on civil rights, they had a friendship that he could call on. And so I think you're right. If you enjoy the, the if, what if people go into politics for, you should enjoy being with people. If you don't, it's not the right profession for you. And the more you can get those moments of, you know, sloping around with the congressman, having them to dinner, compromising, making something happen, feeling the pride of a civil rights law or a voting rights act that's going to stand for generations, that's an enormous feeling of fulfillment. We're talking with Doris Kearns Goodwin, Pulitzer Prize winning historian, author of The Bully Pulpit, No Ordinary Time. Um, Team of Rivals, and many other books. She's uh, one of the experts featured in Ken Burns' new documentary called The Roosevelt's An Intimate History. Features uh, Theodore Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt, these uh, three iconic figures who have had such a great effect on us. Um, And that begins on PBS Sunday evening and runs for uh, seven consecutive uh, evenings. Back after this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Square One Printing. 630 West, 200 North, Logan. Personalized printing for home, school, or business, including banners, business cards, and letterhead. Information at squareoneprinting.com. Today's program originally broadcast in September of 2014.
The Roosevelt can be viewed online at pbs.org, and you can still join this conversation on our Twitter page at Utah Public Radio or at upraccess at gmail.com. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. I'm pleased uh, to be joined uh, for this hour by Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Doris Kearns Goodwin. Uh, she's author of several books, including The Bully Pulpit, which is about Theodore Roosevelt, William Howard Taft, The Golden Age of Journalism, No Ordinary Time, Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt, The Homefront in World War II, and Team of Rivals, The Political Genius of Abraham Lincoln, and other books. She's one of the experts featured on Ken Burns' new documentary, The Roosevelt's An Intimate History, that airs on PBS uh, here in Utah's KUED. We're going to bring forward an email we received when Doris Kearns Goodwin was on in January. We're on tape at that point, so we weren't able to get this on. Uh, but this is from Ted. Um, and we were talking, of course, about the bully pulpit, which, ha- which treats uh, T.R. and his vice president, William Howard Taft, and the golden age of journalism. It's that, that last part that Ted's uh, wanting to talk about says, good morning, Tom, great get, uh, meaning uh, Mrs. Goodwin. I have Doris Kearns Goodwin's Bully Pulpit right here, although I haven't read it yet. Goodwin is a national treasure. I'm delighted to hear her conversation with you. He goes on to say, here's my question for her if you have time. The subhead on this work is the golden age of journalism. Can Ms. Goodwin talk a little bit about the differences between Roosevelt's and Taft's relationship with the press and the press's relationship with power today? Too adversarial? Too lapdog? The implications for the press's role as a public servant? Well, I think that, you know, the difference between Taft and Teddy's view of the press was fundamental in what made Theodore Roosevelt a successful leader and made Taft have more difficulty in the presidency because Teddy understood that he needed the press um, because the bully pulpit was the most powerful tool he had to mobilize public opinion, the president's power to speak to the country. And the press was a channel and a vessel, again, to use that word, to speak to the country. Whereas William Howard Taft, coming from the judicial world, having been a judge beforehand, thought that once you made a decision and you put it out there, that was it, you know, that people should understand it rationally. And and the times would decide whether you were right or wrong. And he wasn't at comfort with the members of the press. He didn't like giving speeches. So even though he was such a decent leader in so many other ways, that public leadership part of the role was not what he was at comfort with. And that really was the distinction between the two. I think in terms of the difference today, it, it is, it's huge. I mean, then they were able, I think, in Theodore Roosevelt's time to have a relationship that was partly adversarial, partly intimate, and yet kept the integrity on both sides. And now it just seems much more complicated for a president to remain close to a group of journalists, as Theodore Roosevelt did, without those journalists feeling perhaps that their integrity was being undone. And the key, as I said before, was that they were able to still criticize Teddy, and he was confident enough to take the criticism so that they didn't lose their integrity. And, and also they were writing about public issues. They weren't caught up in entertainment. They weren't caught up in celebrity stuff. They had attention spans of the audience that would read their 30,000 words pieces. (laughs) Unlike today, it's hard to imagine with our divided, fragmented time that we could have that patience to read the kind of investigative reports that these people were producing at that time. Let's uh, hear another clip from the uh, movie, Ken Burns' movie, The Roosevelt's, uh, which, uh, as I said, is premiering on PBS. This is clip number three. This uh, talks about uh, how the presidents, both presidents, TR and FDR, felt about the Constitution. I think both presidents regarded the Constitution as a nuisance. 
that is something that was all right in the late 18th century, but just didn't fit A, their country, and more important, them. They had bigger dreams, and they thought that uh, the Constitution was elastic enough to accommodate their ambitions. They belonged to different parties. They overcame different obstacles. They had different temperaments and styles of leadership. But it was the similarities and not the differences between the two that meant the most to history. So there's uh, there's a little bit of it. And thinking back, you, you know, you, you remember okay. things like uh, FDR trying to pack the court. and uh, <laughs> um, Exactly. And similarly with Theodore Roosevelt, legislation that he had passed when he was governor, when he was in the state senate, was overturned by the New York Supreme Court. And then later, some of his legislation as president was overturned by the Supreme Court. So they both had a very adversarial relationship with the Supreme Court and therefore are arguing that the Constitution should be more broadly interpreted so that legislation that allowed a maximum number of hours for factory workers or allowed you to regulate conditions in factories should be able to be constitutional. Because at that period of time, a lot of those laws that they both thought were essential for the well-being of the people were being undone by Supreme Court. I want to bring the, this forward to, uh, to today's issues, uh, this, this balance of power. So first of all, uh, the president recently, uh, President Obama recently, recently gave a speech on uh, how he's suggesting that we deal with uh, ISIS. Um, and there's a debate over how forward ahead of Congress the president should go. We've had this tension all through our history. Uh, what do you think the lessons are? Should, should this definitely go to, go to Congress and he should get permission for Congress to, for any well, action? I, I think he'd be wise to have a discussion in the Congress, even if it's true that the commander-in-chief's powers can allow him to do the airstrikes under an earlier agreement. Um, whenever you don't have Congress involved, it's, it's, it's not as good in the long run. I mean, I think about the Vietnam situation. So the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution in 1964 was rushed through the Congress. In fact, um, the mood was Senator Greening said that Papa knows best, that, that Johnson had information we didn't have. And that really became the whole authority for the war in Vietnam. And the debate in the House lasted 40 minutes. And in the Senate, it was only nine hours. And had there been a real debate even then, and if Johnson had had to go back to the Congress, a Congress that he really respected and needed when he needed them, maybe the war might not have gone on as long as it did. And similarly, even with the Iraqi war, you know, there was a debate, but I remember Senator Byrd said um, that the chamber was for the most part silent. There was no real debate, no discussion, no attempt to lay out the pros and the cons. We are truly sleepwalking through history, he said. So I think right now, even though that may well be that he has the power to do some of the things that he's doing, he should welcome and want the Congress to talk about this. Because unless the Congress is with you on these things and you start splitting apart when men are going to war and women are going to war and you have a long possible outcome of this thing and the public then begins to not support it, that's the difficulty we've seen in these previous wars. We do have a caller on the line. Georgia joins us. Georgia, welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm very pleased to hear Mrs. Goodman on. I've heard her speak at Utah League of Cities and Towns and some other contexts. But I'd like her to, she talked about all of them having leadership. I'd like her to refer to maybe one or two qualities that she saw in Lincoln and the two Roosevelts and Johnson, the men that she's written. So 
so interestingly about and, and done such great research on if she'd be willing to do that. No, I'd be glad to because, in fact, the book that I'm going to be working on now is going to be bringing all my guys into the room at the same time and trying to oh, figure good. out I, I what are these qualities that, that they shared. <laughs> so I think what happens with most of them is that they are able to um, bring people around them who can question their assumptions, who can argue with them so that they really have internal debate. Um, they all seem to share a capacity to absorb criticism with grace and to laugh at themselves and endear themselves even to their fiercest critics. They all seem to show a willingness to learn from their mistakes. You know, as, as they say, it's never the mistake that matters as much as you learn from it is the important thing. They all somehow got out on the road to be with the people, got out of the bubble in Washington, could communicate with the people. And interestingly, one of the ones that is too rarely not understood, they all understood how to replenish their energies and relax. So that Lincoln was able to go to the theater a hundred times. He relaxed with his funny stories. Teddy relaxed with all his manic activities. And FDR had cocktail hours every night during World War II where you couldn't talk about the war so he could relax. And so there really are, I think, the way they handle the stresses of the job, many of them it's different depending on the time of, of their leadership, but there's something about human nature that is the same with all of them. Uh, and uh, that was George who joined us. We have Doris Kearns Goodwin with us uh, for another five or six minutes. You can email us at upraxis at gmail.com. Uh, we're uh, coming down near the end of the program, uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin. Uh, so I promised uh, a listener that we'd talk baseball. Okay, so, it's a deal. So, uh, so we're, we're going back to uh, your, your uh, wonderful memoir, uh, Growing Up. You talk about your family and your love of baseball. This, this, that time would have been the Dodgers, right? That's right, Brooklyn Dodgers. And then eventually when they abandoned us and got, went to Los Angeles and I moved to Boston, I became a Red Sox fan. So I wonder if you could talk about um, the, the Boston Strong. You've lived through this. Um, and they went from worst to first, and unfortunately they're back to worst again. Um, but this is what is a critical time where they really had a rallying effect uh, after the uh, Boston Marathon bombings. No, there was really something magic about last year. And in fact, even as I was going through it, it was such a happy summer that I promised myself if it didn't happen again for a while, I wouldn't get greedy. And I remember that this year. Instead of being so sad, I just keep thinking about last year. Because, indeed, I was finishing the bully pulpit last summer, so I couldn't really take a vacation. I couldn't even be reading the newspapers and finding out what was going on, except I could read the box scores every single day and be so happy because the Red Sox had won so many games. And there was something about, after that marathon bombing, happening on the same day as one of those iconic Red Sox games on Patriots Day, that the players came together and they each performed better than they normally would have, and they became a team. I mean, that's the key in anything. They somehow became a collective identity rather than a bunch of individual players. And to be in this city that summer and then to go, we have season tickets, so we were able to be at all the playoff games and then most incredibly be there when they actually won the World Series, which I'd never able to be the two other times before because they'd won out of town. It really made you feel connected to the people around you. Boston had a, you know, a sense of, of identity and it, it did feel like it went back to Yes, you can't get us marathon bombers. We'll be strong in this one way. The team represented a lot of the spirit of the city. And, you know, it's interesting because that's my connection to Ken Burns, too, because when I was on his documentary on baseball, it was only after that that a publisher came to me and said, why don't you write about your family and baseball? I would never have thought of doing it. So when I saw Ken the other day, I was saying that I'll be ever for grateful to him because that book meant so much to me to bring my parents back to life again, not just 
important presidents back to life, but my family, who instilled that love of baseball in me in the first place. We do have another, another caller. This is Nora. Nora, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you. Um, I, I have a question. It might be a little earlier than you want to address this as far as baseball goes, but uh, Doris, I'd love to know your perspective about baseball's place in American life today and your thoughts on that. You know, I think it's still, and maybe it's because I'm so nostalgic, I think it still has a special life. There's something about playing 162 games, about fans being involved from, you know, late winter when spring comes, you know that spring is there when spring training starts, all the way till the World Series in October. I mean, obviously there's a lot of competition in the faster-moving sports like football and basketball, but I think there's something about the way baseball is handed down from one family member to another and the slowness of the pace of it so that you can talk about whatever happened in other games prior to the moment that's happening then that makes it a really um, intensely watched game. And I'd like to believe that even if you know it may not have the same universal strength that it had when it was one of the only sports, it doesn't matter. It still has that intensity of involvement for the people who love it. Nora, thanks for the, for the call. Did that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you okay, very thank, much. Thank you. Uh, it, it, I don't know. It's just I had a sort of a uh, experience of, of joy across the divide when the when the Red Sox finally won a World Series. It had been so many so many years, and I think probably because my dad was a Cubs fan. Uh, and <laughs> Understandably, he, then I wanted yeah. the Cubs to win that next year. After we won, <laughs> it felt only fair that it was their time. And he uh, he died without ever having a you know, and I don't know if the Cubs are ever going to get there, uh, but there's sort of a you know, uh, you want to share the joy, but also sort of that uh, sharing the disappointment in the team over many years. That that's kind of a, a group experience as well. Yeah, it's bizarre. I mean, I remember one of the playoff games when we lost before we'd even won in '04, and everybody was so downhearted. And then some older man stood up and he just kept yelling year after year after year, and we all started laughing. And you're right, we had all experienced this sense of almost hope crushed at the end, and there is something that connects you to people, even in the sadness, which made, of course, the triumph even greater. I'd like to believe that if I'd been a Yankee fan all those years, would it ever get tiring just winning year after year after year? This was pretty special to win after such a long period of time. And have the phenomenon of people rooting against your team, you know, the way that happens with the Yankees. That's right, (laughs) that's right. Uh, no, but this is really what's been fun now for me about the paperback coming out at the same time as Ken Burns is both the Eleanor and Franklin book is coming back out in paperback, and this is now the first week the Bully Pulpit's out. It just feels like my guys that I love so much are now going to be in film as well as in the words of my book so that there's that extra dimension of being able to hear their voices and, and watch them interact and see them which when you're reading a book, hopefully you imagine them, which I think is a powerful experience too. But I'm, I'm so glad the timing has been that these paperbacks are coming out at the same time as the film. I understand that there, there's going to be a miniseries based on your Homefront book? Yes, that's been uh, actually a, a writer that was involved in the early stages of the Lincoln script, Paul Webb, a wonderful guy who's become a good friend of ours, has, um, has, has, is working on a 10-hour miniseries on No Ordinary Time. So... And I've seen the first part of it, which looks terrific. So I'm hoping that really happens. The, the adventures of being involved with the movies is another whole world when you're a writer. And it was such a, such a great adventure to be involved in the Lincoln movie. And so I'm really looking forward to Franklin and Eleanor coming 
hopefully on the screen as well. What did you think of the Lincoln movie? You thought it turned out well? I loved it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I thought Daniel Day-Lewis was the Lincoln I knew. That was the most important thing to me. I'd gotten to know him pretty well in the year before he did the filming because I took him to Springfield to show him all the sites, and we corresponded. And then suddenly he's no longer Daniel Day-Lewis, my friend anymore. He is Lincoln. The way he walked, the way he talked, that sense of humor, it really was extraordinary. And I'd gotten close to Tony Kushner during the writing of all the scripts, and I think he did a terrific job. So uh, you mentioned what's coming next. You're going you're gonna to bring, uh, as you call them, your guys together. What, what's that going to be? Well, it's going to be a book on leadership. So that what I am going to try and do, that's why that caller's question was so interesting, because that's really what I'm trying to do is to look at them all and figure out how did they lead the country and what lessons can we learn from their strengths and their failures. So that instead of having to do huge research, um, I can use what I understand about them and tell stories to illustrate the various leadership traits. So I'm um, having a good time with them. I'm also thinking a little bit about, because Spielberg has gotten the rights for the Teddy and Taft movie as well, you know, about what that movie could be. So it's, it's a fun time to be involved in these couple projects. Oh, so that, that might turn into a movie as well. Yes. That, yeah. Well, yeah, definitely he's already optioned that. Oh, so that's, great. And, you know, it's a long process. It took a lot of years to make Lincoln, so it may take a while to make Teddy and Taft, but um, I think it's a story that has that human drama in it that would, you know, be fit well for, uh, for a feature film. Yeah, Daniel Day-Lewis didn't, didn't occur to me uh, initially uh, for Lincoln, but it, he did such a great job. I don't know if you have casting suggestions for Teddy and Taft. You know, people have talked about, interestingly, someone like Leonardo DiCaprio, because he has that manic energy that Teddy has. You know, when he was on Wolf of Wall Street, I saw that. I mean, he's a little younger than Teddy would be, but not much from the time when Teddy would be in this. And, of course, when people think about Taft, John Goodman is the one that comes immediately to mind, because you will need a large fellow, and he's a good actor and has that sort of amiable smile. But I leave these things completely up to <laughs> Steven Spielberg. I mean, he knows this so much better than I do, but it's fun to think about it anyway. Right. Well, that's, that's, a, lot, that's a lot coming out, so uh, that, that'll be great to, to see all those things. Doris Kearns Goodwin has been my guest. Uh, she is featured in uh, Ken Burns' new documentary. It's called The Roosevelt's An Intimate History. It's uh, premiering on PBS, including KUED here in Utah, and uh, talks about uh, these three key people, uh, Theodore Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt. Uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin, uh, it's been, been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. I hope we can do this again. I oh. really enjoyed it. Thank yeah. you. Anytime, anytime, sincerely. Deal. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Take care. Appreciate that. Thank you. And bye, bye now. Thanks for joining us today. And programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3, featuring lunch panini, salads, sandwiches, and soups, Full menu at crumbrothers.com. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.